The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold or silver. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, friends. How are you? Glad to be here with you this morning um, as we continue thinking about and looking at what the Bible has to teach us about the kingdom of God. A uh, quick show of hands, how many of you guys played an instrument in middle school band? Yeah, what, did you play drums? Well, yeah, the drummer played drums. So you guys, you guys, some of you guys played cool instruments that you still play today. I played the saxophone. I don't know about you, but I haven't played a saxophone since about 10th grade. But um, a lot of us, right, have a background in music, and this is a great part of formation. You know, if you play an instrument, it teaches you about music, and you appreciate music. And one of the things, if you have a little bit of musical background that you'll be familiar with, is the idea of a prelude. A prelude is a short piece of music that comes before or sets up a longer and more complex piece of music. And the prelude often anticipates a musical motif that will recur later on in the piece. Well, I needed a P word for today's sermon, so here it is, the prelude to the kingdom of God. Uh, here's what I mean. We've been saying that the kingdom of God is the theme of the entire Bible. It's the thing that holds everything together, but you may be aware that there are some specific books in the Old Testament called First and Second Kings, or one and two kings, as my British friends like to say. I'm not sure why they just say one and two instead of first and second. Maybe, maybe they know better than us because this is their language after all. But the question is this, what is God showing us about his kingdom in that section of the Bible? If we're looking at the kingdom of God, we would be naive to skip the books of kings because apparently they have some connection to this theme. What is that connection? Well, the simple answer is that the books of the kings, the stories of the kings throughout the Old Testament, are a prelude. They give us a hint or a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is, but they are not the full symphony. 
There's a reason why the kings of the Old Testament failed to fully and clearly represent the kingdom of God. And that's the story that we're going to explore together this morning. So, so here's the simple outline for the sermon this morning. What was supposed to happen? That's what we'll look at first. What actually happened? That's what we'll look at second. And then what it teaches us. Okay? What was supposed to happen, what actually happened, and what all that teaches us about the kingdom of God. Now, you're going to need your Bible this morning, so I'd like to invite you to get out an actual copy of the Bible. You can find one underneath a seat near you, either your seat or one near you. Go ahead and get it out, and I want you to open to the table of contents. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? The table of contents, all right? So open to the table of contents. My Bible has the Old Testament listed first, and then the New Testament And if you look at the table of contents of the Old Testament, let's quickly survey how it works. What's the first book you see there? Genesis. And the book of Genesis has three major sections. It starts with the primeval history, chapters 1 through 11, sort of the early history of the earth and of mankind. Then we have a section dealing with the patriarchs, Genesis 12 through 36, and then the story of Joseph. So it starts very macro and zooms in on this one figure, Joseph. The book of Genesis ends with Abraham's descendants living in Egypt. So that's where Genesis ends. A few centuries pass, that people is oppressed and become slaves, and then you have the book of Exodus, God delivering his people from bondage in Egypt. Then they wander in the desert for 40 years, during which we get Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then Joshua, under Joshua's leadership, the people enter the promised land. That's what God had promised to Abraham, and they begin to fulfill that promise. Then we get to the book of Judges, and the repeated refrain of the book of Judges is, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so that's a time of chaos and uh, discord. And then we have the book of Ruth there, which happens in the days the judges ruled, as Pastor Justin reminded us in February when we preached through the book of Ruth. Then we get to First and Second Samuel. Samuel was the last of the judges, and he anoints the first king of Israel, and that gets us to the books of the kings. Now, Okay, that's, so we just did the table of contents. I got you from Genesis to Kings. That's about a thousand years of biblical history, okay? So that helps you. It helps you understand, okay, these books of the Bible, here's what they're telling us about. The beginnings of the story. Now, remember the big picture. The pattern of the kingdom of God set for us in Genesis 1 and 2 is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And sin fractured that. It broke our relationship with God and with one another. It displaced us in God's world so that we feel sort of this sense of homelessness. And it caused us to go our own way and follow our own rules. And God, by his grace, promised to Abraham that he would redeem his people, bring them back to his place under his rule. And so throughout Exodus, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, that promise is being fulfilled. We now have God's people They're in God's place, and now we just need to get them under God's rule, which gets us to point one of our outline for today. What was supposed to happen as we come to the period of the kings? So turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We're actually going to each point, you notice I have three points this morning, each one has a different passage, all right? So we're going to preach three sermons this morning in one. We're going to start in Deuteronomy 17. Chapter 14, or sorry, chapter 17, 
verse 14, this is now the book of Deuteronomy. So this is Moses, the lawgiver, God's God's leader who entrusted and, and gave the people the law of God. He's telling them what it's going to look like when it comes time to have a king. Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall, put, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So here are the stipulations for a king. God says, hey, when you get into the land, if you want to appoint a king, you can do that. Here are the stipulations. Number one, this person shouldn't be a foreigner. They should be from among you. They should be one of the people of Israel. Second, this person should not acquire horses, wives, or silver and gold. These speak to three key temptations. The temptation of power, the temptation of dynasty, and the temptation of wealth. So he should not acquire these things. In fact, he should be aware of the temptation he will have to acquire these things. So not a foreigner, not someone who acquires horses, wives, or silver and gold. And thirdly, this king is to be submitted to God's law. Notice what a unique vision of political life this is. It's not anarchy. There is rule and leadership and political authority, but it's a unique kind of authority, isn't it? This king is not a law unto himself. Rather, he is under the law of God. And notice, he is to write God's law. He is to read God's law. And he is to keep God's law. The, the end of the chapter here says he's going to write a copy of this. He's going to write himself a copy of this law. He's going to read in it or read from it daily. And he's going to obey it. He should model what it's like to follow this law. So this is a pretty profound vision of rule, especially if you think about the rest of the world as we know it, the rest of the world at this time, what you know of dynasties like ancient Egypt or ancient Assyria. These were places with great might and great power and places where if you were the pharaoh, if you were the king, if you were at the top of the heap, everything accumulated to you. You were almost a law unto yourself. And God says, my people are going to do things differently. This king is going to be humble 
He's going to be one of the people, not over the people. And what's going to keep him humble is a commitment to my word and a commitment to a life that does not look like the kings around. Now, I want to read to you a quote from Herman Bovink that's, that's really profound because he helps us understand why, why did this period exist if, if the vision of the whole scriptures is the kingdom of God? Why did it take this particular existence under Israel? He writes this, Amid Israel, the kingdom of God was enclosed within the narrow boundaries of the national state. It was particularistic, and it had to be, in order not to hover as an abstract idea somewhere above history, in order genuinely to enter into the history of the human race. Isn't that interesting? What he's saying is, hey, the kingdom of God can't hover as some abstract ideal. The question we all have is, what does it mean for God to rule in my actual life? What does it mean for God to be God of my relationships, of my finances, of my work, of my family life? And part of what God is doing in the Old Testament and allowing his kingdom to have a particular manifestation in Israel is showing us, hey, this is a kingdom that's meant for real actual life. Here's what it looks like when my kingdom gets worked out in the real stuff of life. So what was supposed to happen? Well, the king was to be a humble leader, submitted to God's law, and careful to avoid the temptations of power and wealth and dynasty. This was God's vision of how his kingdom was to be led and ruled as it took shape in Israel. Now, Let's take a look at what actually happened. So let's go actually to the book of Kings. We'll go to 1 Kings chapter 10. All right? So flip over to 1 Kings chapter 10. We're going to make our way through the entire Old Testament. So we're going to jump from Deuteronomy to 1 Kings 10. Starting in verse 21, we're going to read here about the reign of King Solomon. 1 Kings 10, verse 21. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Solomon's reign is the high point of the kingdom of Israel. Think about it. The whole world is coming to Jerusalem to see, how do these people live? How do they do it? What is, what is this king's wisdom like? How have they built such an amazing empire? In a sense, isn't this what we want for God's church? That the people of God would be a place where there's such beauty and such wisdom that the city would take notice and say, 
how do these people do it? What's, what's unique about their life together? That's, that's kind of what we see happening here in 1 Kings. But at this very high point, at this apex of God's kingdom on earth, Solomon does the three things that are explicitly forbidden in Deuteronomy 17. You've already seen that he has so much silver and gold that he don't even have any normal dishes in his house, right? There's no sippy cups in Solomon's palace. There's no Yeti mugs. Everything's just gold. Just gold everywhere, right? So he's acquired a lot of silver and gold. That should raise your concern. Like, I think that's what Deuteronomy 17 said he's not supposed to do, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 1,200 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from, oops, Egypt and Kuwait. And the king's traders received them from Kuwait at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150, so that through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. So on the one hand, great economic program here, good import-export balance. He's buying cheap and selling for more and making a profit for the kingdom, but he's not supposed to be getting horses from Egypt, right? You shouldn't be surprised by what comes next. Verse Kings 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. So Deuteronomy 17 said, hey, appoint a king. Just make sure that king doesn't acquire silver or gold or horses or many wives. The writer of Kings just told you Solomon has acquired all three. At the same time that the writer of Kings is telling you this, this is fantastic um, success in one sense for the kingdom of God. He's intentionally reminding you, and this also is the beginning of the end. This also is the place where things go sideways. Solomon has become the very thing that God had said, don't become that. Let's read verses 3 and 4. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Notice the repetition of his heart being turned away, his heart not being wholly devoted to the Lord. The problem here is not Solomon's great success as a leader. The problem is not the great prosperity he brought to the people of God. The problem is that his heart was turned away from full devotion to God. So at this very moment when the kingdom of God seems to be reaching its zenith, we see the great danger that's present not just for Solomon, but for each and every one of us. I want you to hear the warning here 
But the New Testament tells us all these things that are written down in redemptive history are written for our instruction. Notice the warning. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. By the way, it's not blaming the wives, just to be clear. It's Solomon whose heart turned away. It's connecting the dots that the reason his heart turned away is because of his disobedience to Deuteronomy 17 and the plan that God had set up from the beginning. But notice what it says, when he was old. How easy it is for our hearts to turn away from the Lord. I mean, Solomon had a good run. We find out at the end of this chapter, he was king for 40 years, four decades. And we can imagine, based on this, that he probably had a few decades of real good communion with God and faithfulness. And then you know what happened? The older he got, the less devoted he became. I've been the pastor at Cormdale for 16 years. So not even half this time. But I'm so struck by this warning. Because I see this same tendency in my own soul. Like the younger I was, the more wholehearted I was, the more energetic I was, the more passionate I was, and some of that was probably youthful stupidity, but a lot of it was just good godly zeal. And then you know what happens? We get older, we grow more cynical. There's more reasons to be jaded about the state of the world or about the state of God's people or about the state of our own souls. And it becomes very possible for our hearts to be turned away. That's exactly what happened to Solomon. Here's what Graham Goldsworthy observes. All that the covenant to Abraham had promised was under Solomon both realized and lost. The pattern of kingdom existence is certainly there, but its perfection is not. See, friends, the narrative arc, the story of the Bible is telling us something about the kingdom of God. Notice what Goldsworthy says. Everything God had promised to Abraham was under Solomon, both realized and lost. The pattern of the kingdom existence is there. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, kind of, until they weren't, right? So what is this? teach us. Let's move now to the third point. What does this story, this narrative teach us? And let's keep moving in our Bible to the book of Ezekiel, back toward the back of the Old Testament after Psalms and Proverbs, the prophet Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 14 through 20. Ezekiel is going to give us a clear summary of what this storyline teaches us. Ezekiel 11, beginning in verse 14. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, go far from the Lord. To us, this land is given for possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. 
Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. That's speaking of idols, false gods, false worship. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is what the story of the kings teach us. God's people need a new heart. That's the simple point. It's not enough for us to have the kingdom of God around us. We need the kingdom of God within us. And that's why the gospel is such good news, friends. This is the promise that God is fulfilling through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the sending of the Holy Spirit. A new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's what happened to you through faith in Jesus Christ and through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise that's been fulfilled in you through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God doesn't work from the outside in. It works from the inside out. Jesus didn't come to give us a new law. He came to give us a new heart. The good news of the gospel is not that you can do better. The good news of the gospel is that you can be different. You can be a different kind of person. The question that begs to be asked as we flip from the Old Testament to the New Testament is this. What changed? The apostles are just human leaders, like Solomon. They're leaders among God's people. They have the same scriptures that Solomon did. They have the same promises that Solomon did. They have the same capacities for selfishness and sin that Solomon did. And yet this band of flawed, imperfect leaders, just like you and me, this band of faulty people, fallen people, failing people, turned the world upside down. And rather than turning away from God, most of them gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. What changed? The Holy Spirit. That's what changed. I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within them. The simple contrast between Old Testament and New Testament, between the kings of old and the kingdom of God as we now know it because of the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit. The simple contrast that Romans points to, that the book of Hebrews points to is this. The law no longer stands outside of us telling us what to do. But now God has written his law within us, giving us a new capacity, a new desire, a new ability to do what he asks us to do. You have something Solomon didn't have. And that is the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. 
Friends, as we talk about the gospel, what is the good news of the gospel? The good news is, yes, Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't live and died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead and offers eternal life to all who believe in him and also that he sent, gave to his people the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Ezekiel was pointing to. That's what Ezekiel was saying. Here's what God's people need. Here's what the kingdom of God is going to require to really exist the way God means it to exist. It's going to require a new heart and a new spirit, and the law being written within God's people. And that's what the Spirit has brought about. That's why we have great news to share with the world and with everyone around us who knows that God's rules are good and God's laws are good and God's ways are good, but finds themselves frustrated with the ability to actually walk in them. The books of First and Second Kings are a prelude. They show us what the kingdom of God is meant to be. A real earthly kingdom of abundance and bounty that blesses the whole world. And they show what keeps it from becoming that. What's the core problem that keeps the kingdom of God from being what it should be? Answer, your fickle heart and mine. And they point us to our need for a new heart, for an inside-out renovation that changes every part of us. And that's what Jesus brings and what the Holy Spirit accomplishes. The books of Kings are a prelude that shows us what should be and what can't be and what will only be through the death and resurrection of Jesus in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So now you know how to read your Bible. Now you know how to read all those stories in the Old Testament of all those kings, some of whom were good kings who did their best to follow God, and some of whom were terrible, evil kings who led the people into apostasy and rebellion. But the whole narrative, the whole narrative tells the same story, that no matter how good the leadership was, no matter how great the human beings were who sought to lead the people of God, there was always something that stood in the way of God's kingdom being realized as it needed to be, and that was the heart of man, the heart of human beings. That's what needs to change, and that's the gracious promise of the gospel. So let me ask you to reflect on two questions, two simple questions. Number one, have you come to Jesus and received a new heart? If not, won't you do so today? Friends, listen to me. The kingdom of God is not about a set of rules, a religious community to belong to. It's not about a bunch of people that you can be within and among. It is all of that, but that's not the essence of what it is. The essence of what it is is coming to Jesus and really receiving a new heart, receiving the gracious gift of a new heart and of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Have you come to him and received that? If not, won't you do so today? Second question is this. What in your life, what in your experience can only be explained by the Holy Spirit? Like as I think about the book of Kings, here's the great challenge to us. 
So much of what Solomon, and not just Solomon, but all the rest of the kings, so much of what they were capable of was just really good human strategy. If they were a good leader and had some resources at their disposal, you could have a great import-export strategy, right? I mean, you could have gold cups in your house. You could have a lot of prosperity and a lot of blessing and a lot of things that seem like things are going well. And aren't we the same? Like, as long as we have some resource and some human ingenuity, we can do a lot of things. But what in your life? What in my life? What in our church? What in our witness to the world can only be explained by the Holy Spirit? That's the question we need to ask. That's the thing we need to continue to seek God for. That we'd be a people marked not just by good strategy and good wisdom and good leadership and some good plans and strategies and structures but that we'd be a people so marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit that it would be clear that something supernatural, unique, and different has happened and is happening among us. Let's pray to that end. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for these these stories, this progressive revelation that you have given us that shows both the great promise that your kingdom offered and also the great weakness that kept it from being what it should have been. So thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have died for all of our sin and set us free and forgiven us from all of our failures. And thank you, you have sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to renew us, to give us a new heart, a heart of flesh that feels not a heart of stone that is hard before you. So God, would you continue to renew in us the power, the life, the vitality of your Holy Spirit. For those among us this morning or those within the sound of my voice who have not yet come to Jesus to receive a new heart, would you right now provoke them to come to him and be changed? And Father, would you now, as we continue to worship, as we come to your table, as we reflect on and ponder your word, would you, by your Holy Spirit, confirm your love for us, confirm the power that you have put within us, and make us increasingly a people whose existence and whose goodness can only be explained by the presence of the Spirit of God. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.